Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CDUSA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. Montana, 1996. It's air quotes, spring break at MSU, and I've decided to spend my March reprieve hiking into the Bear Trap Canyon. Neoprene waders and wool fend off the flurries along the trail. Every hundred meters or so, I kick a rock to scrape the snow buildup off my felt soles. Stuffed into my backpack, I have a tarp, sleeping bag, a few frozen burritos, and likely several cheap loggers. Most importantly, I have a fly box full of chartreuse serendipities, simple patterns tied the night before. I hike until I discover a cave with base camp potential. 
save for a sampling of fecal matter, spelunking affirms vacancy. The camp water looks ripe, a boulder-strewn run at walking speed. I ditch the soggy backpack and wade into the river. No sooner I flip one of the bright green caddis larva imitations into the pocket water that I begin catching trout. One after another, I pluck healthy browns and rainbows from the icy Madison. Then I hook a juvenile trout and try to shake it loose. The little fish won't budge, so I bring it to hand. Cradling it in my palm, I notice the deformity. The tail is askew, as if someone twisted the fish. So this is whirling disease, I think. A parasitic infection of fish caused by a microscopic protozoan that destroys the cartilage of juvenile trout. Whirling disease captured national attention in the 1990s when it was discovered in some of Montana's hallowed watersheds. Though hatcheries were initially blamed for the outbreak, further pathogenesis research pointed to frozen fish products. In the fly fishing world, the sky was most certainly falling and felt soul funeral pyres rage across the industry. Like COVID, whirling disease never went away. But once the pandemonium subsided, I dug up my last pair of studded felt-soled wading boots I'd hidden from the rubber Gestapo. With whirling disease off the radar, I resumed my traction-centric ways. But the message had been received, and rinsing my gear off after a fishing session became standard practice. Around 2016, rumors began to surface of a troublesome mollusk rearing its ugly foot across the 46th parallel. Watercraft inspection stations began to pop up along travel corridors. Soon, the mollusk was joined by other unwelcome immigrants from all over the planet with names like Eurasian milfoil and New Zealand mud snails. The hunt was on to track down and eradicate the acronym AIS, Aquatic Invasive Species. These organisms became the target of a region-wide posse of government agencies and concerned citizens and graced the most wanted list at boat ramps and fishing access sites. What are these critters? Why are we so concerned about them? And where did they come from? The 1980s brought us back to the future, Devo and zebra mussels. So named for the stripe markings on the shell, the latter are an invasive, fingernail-sized mollusk that is native to the Aral, Black, and Caspian Seas. Zebra mussels have spread rapidly throughout the Northwoods region and into the large rivers of the eastern Mississippi drainage. They have also been found in Texas, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and California. The ground zero has been traced to the Great Lakes region. Tim Campbell is the AIS program manager for the University of Wisconsin. Uh, so it looks like it was most likely introduced to the Great Lakes in ships from Europe. Yep, uh, a lot of invasive species are transported or have been transported through the ballast of ships. Um, zebra and quagga mussels included, uh, were, they were brought to, or accidentally brought to the Great Lakes in the 1980s through ballast water ships. So, um, if you're unfamiliar with ballast water, transoceanic, or transoceanic ships will use ballast to be more stable 
water if they don't have a full load of cargo. Um, and so, you know, in the past that is in soil or like anything heavy that can fit into the boat. <laughs> but with modern vessels, it's become easy and really efficient to use water as ballast. And so they can pump water into these ballast containers really easily, use it for however long they need to, and then pump it out. Unfortunately, they're not just bringing in that water or bringing that water on board. They're bringing in all the, you know, plants, animals, plankton, disease that is in that water. And when they get rid of their ballast, uh, wherever they're getting rid of it, they're introducing it to that new body of water. Zebra mussels pose a litany of problems for the watersheds that they invade. Once established, they change the aquatic environment forever. And arguably, prevention is the best medicine. Craig Solon lives on a quiet lake in northern Wisconsin, but AIS keep him up at night. Big Mackenzie Lake, which, and it, which is connected to Middle Mackenzie Lake by, uh, by a, a, a stream, both of those lakes now have zebra mussels. Problem there that Big Mackenzie connects to Middle Mackenzie. Middle Mackenzie collects, connects to Lower Mackenzie again by this same stream that eventually flows into the Nemecoggin River. So eventually those mussels will be transported down that stream to the Nemecoggin River. And so once they get to the Nemecoggin River, then they go to the St. Croix. Not that they don't already have them there, but Nemecoggin, to my, my knowledge, doesn't have them yet. But Well, the big problem with zebra mussels is, I mean, the zebra mussels literally are what caused the uh, demise of the walleye fishery on the lacks. You know, the, the, one of the number one walleye lakes or used to be in the world and uh, over in Minnesota. And basically what they do is, you know, they feed all the basic plankton and food sources that small walleye fry feed on and all of a sudden there's no food for them and so guess what no food they don't do well and other species take over so big thing that's happened to big mackenzie and middle mackenzie now is they're so these zebra mussels are so prolific that they literally uh, encrust and cover anything that's under the under the water so when you pull their pull, pull their boat lifts and docks out they're just absolutely encrusted with zebra mussels. Here in Montana, our first brush with zebra mussels came in 2016, when multiple larvae were detected on two separate sampling events in Tiber Reservoir. This qualified Tiber as positive for invasive mussels. Meanwhile, a single larva was discovered during sampling of Canyon Ferry Reservoir which led to a designation of suspect within the regional standards for classification of mussel-fouled waters. However, no adult mussels, nor any further evidence of them, has been found. As a result, Tiber Reservoir was eventually delisted as a mussel-suspect water. No victory lap has been taken, and the state remains vigilant in its AIS prevention efforts. Here's Thomas Wolf, AIS Bureau Chief 
for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. So aquatic invasive species, one of the primary ways they move around is on watercraft. So uh, we've put a great deal of focus on inspecting boats as they come into the state. Uh, there's a lot of aquatic invasive species that we don't have in Montana that can travel on boats. Um, and so those inspection stations are set up to, to address that issue. Um, clean, green, dry is our message. And that really helps address the invasive species issue. If your boat's clean, it's drained of all the water and it's dry, it's not a, uh, not going to be transporting invasive species. So that's what the stations are set up for. Um, in, in Montana, our law requires uh, an inspection before launch for any boats coming into the state, crossing west over the Continental Divide with intent to launch in the state, or crossing into the Flathead Basin with intent to launch. Native to Europe and Asia, Eurasian water milfoil can grow up to 20 feet tall. First discovered in the eastern United States way back in the early 1900s, we can surmise that this perennial plant hitched a ride on an international vessel. In 1987, Eurasian milfoil was discovered in Minnesota's Lake Minnetonka, not to be confused with Lake Gin and Tonica. The invasive had arrived to the Northwoods. As Solem explains, Eurasian milfoil presents a clear and present danger to watersheds. Well, that's a nasty, nasty uh, weed, basically. Um, it's, it's an emergent plant, and, and the stems grow all the way to the surface. And these things can be anywhere from 3 to 33, 35 feet in length. So they go all the way to the bottom, all the way to the top. And if they're left unchecked, they form these huge, dense mats basically choke out all the sunlight. So anything under anything under the water under these mats no longer going to be able to grow. And basically there's a lot of lakes like Hooner Lake, uh, Clam Lake. There's areas on those lakes where a watercraft cannot even go because it's so thick you can't get through it. Milfoil establishes through vegetative fragmentation. A fragment can break off, settle in the sediment, grow roots, and establish a new plant. The plant dies back in the fall, but the root system can survive the winter and begin growing again in the spring. Further, it can be difficult to identify. Eurasian water milfoil looks similar to many native, beneficial water milfoils found in Minnesota lakes and rivers. All of these caustic characteristics make this invader very hard to evict, and all efforts are being made to keep Eurasian milfoil from becoming established in the first place, as Campbell explains. I do help out with watercraft inspection and education efforts, so we don't really have decontamination stations like what happens in the western U.S., like where there's road checks and hot water, high pressure decontamination and everyone must do this. Um, our water landscape is much different than the Western US. I can compare it to Colorado because I crunched the numbers once. Um, you know, Colorado has watercraft decontamination stations at you know, 
where when you're looking at Minnesota or Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin's 2,000 publicly accessible waters with you know, more than 10,000 total lakes. You know, Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes. So the cost of putting a watercraft decontamination station in each one of those um, is just cost prohibitive um, and doesn't really line up with the funding that we have in the Great Lakes region. So a lot of what we do in uh, the Great Lakes region is just more general watercraft, like I guess we call them inspections, but it's like boater education efforts where we have um, in Wisconsin, we have our Clean Boats Clean Waters program where we have people standing at boat landings, helping boaters uh, do the stop aquatic hitchhiker, clean drain dry steps, where they pick the plants off their boat, they inspect and remove you know, any mud and animals on the boat or other debris. And then they also drain all the water. Uh, you know, they drain their live wells, transom wells, uh, any coolers and all that kind of stuff. And so those really basic prevention steps are really effective at preventing the spread of invasive species. You know, it does a really good job and then this hot water decontamination is a good kind of extra step that provides some additional certainty that your boat isn't transporting aquatic invasive species. Last year, with a Kiwi riding shotgun, the inspector at the boat check station informed us that they were now on the hunt for the New Zealand mud snail. This invertebrate had been discovered within the Bitterroot River watershed. My passenger scoffed, stating that, there's no such thing as a New Zealand mud snail. I agreed, commenting that they likely referred to them as simply snails in their home country. However, we don't want your snails, Kiwis, as this invasive spells trouble for the pristine watersheds throughout Montana, as Wolf explains. The take home message with a lot of these aquatic invasive species like New Zealand mud snails, we have those as well, um, but really, making sure people are doing their due diligence to clean and dry so that they're not part of the problem, spreading them into new basins and new areas. Um, just because we have them in one place doesn't mean that they're everywhere. And so making sure, you know, making sure things are clean and dry every time um, because they aren't everywhere. And every, every water body, every tributary is, is an opportunity for prevention. So we, we approach it that way. While mud snails are easily transported via watercraft, any and all recreational use of waterways has the potential to carry and disperse unwanted passengers, as Campbell explains. Currently, we've done a really good job at reaching boaters with this message because you know, zebra and quagga mussels are really problematic. You know, a lot of aquatic invasive plants, obviously really problematic. Boats move these things around. There's some really clear, simple actions that we can get boaters to take or perform um, to reduce the spread of aquatic invasive species. I don't think we've done as good of a job of reaching out to other, uh, especially recreational water user groups about ways that they might be moving invasive species around that could be problematic as well. For example, with trout anglers, you might move New Zealand mud snails, bitimo, uh, fish disease around through your activities. And we haven't seen the same investment of or like a proportional investment to reaching those water groups, even though you know, there's whole economies like in the Driftless region of you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa, where you know, trout fishing is a large part of that. So it would benefit us to invest a little bit more to make sure that you know, we're keeping these places as pristine as possible so people you know, will continue to visit them, fish for trout, and kind of 
enjoy that resource that we have. Which brings us to education and outreach. As mentioned, no matter the unwelcome species, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And all of us who fish, boat, and recreate on our nation's waterways need to live by the creed, clean, drain, and dry. Yeah, um, clean, drain, dry is the message, right? So uh, when you pull your boat out of the water, crawl under the trailer, look and make sure there's no weeds or anything hanging on there. Um, make sure the bilge is drained. The anchor compartment is clean. That's a big one where you don't have any mud or weeds. Uh, on your anchor or in the compartment that was brought up with the anchor. Um, live wells are drained. And, and that's for people that are just moving around in Montana. You know, part of being a, the solution to the invasive species problem is just making sure you clean, green, dry your boat, um, your boat and your gear every time. For out-of-state, that inspection is required. So you, you don't need an inspection if you're just moving around within Montana, but if you're coming into the state, crossing west over the divide or going into the flatted basin, you got to get that inspection and so that that inspection helps just verify that clean drain dry process and, and make sure you know you didn't miss something that's one thing with the zebra mussels that's really alarming is it, under the right conditions they can survive up to a month out of the water just attached to the hull of a boat way up in a through hole fitting or something they can survive a long time which makes them really mobile they also have uh, a planktonic life stage, a microscopic life stage, where the, they can be invisible just in any standing water. So that's a really easy way to move them around. They can survive a long time like that too, just in a, in a live well that's full of water or, or a wake boat, wakeboard boat, ballast tank, that type of thing. Um, so they can be, in that case, they can be invisible and also survive and be mobile. There's a number of other species in the Great Lakes that can be invisible like that, just planktonic or microscopic um, invasive things. That, um, yeah, that's that dry part of the message is making sure everything's drained and dry and that helps address um, things that we, we can't necessarily see. Funding for prevention and education programs comes from a variety of sources. In Montana, the AIS Prevention Pass helps fund inspection stations and outreach programs. So Prevention Pass is a funding mechanism for the Invasive Species Program. Um, it's a fee that's uh, assessed on the fishing licenses, uh, the, the fishing or the angling prevention pass. Um, if you buy a, a fishing license in state, it's a two dollar fee. Um, out of state, it's a seven fifty fee. Um, and that's just an invisible um, add-on to your to your license to ensure that you know to, to help fund the invasive species program. Um, the vessel we also have a vessel prevention pass, and that's required for only out-of-state boats. Um, an out-of-state boat is coming into the state; they need a vessel prevention pass, uh, thirty dollars for a motorized boat, and ten dollars for a non-motorized watercraft. And again, that helps fund the state's program. So our watercraft inspection stations are uh, managed through Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Um, however, we do have a lot of partners out there we work with. Um, the state contracts with conservation districts, tribes, counties, um, who implement these stations on the ground. So we've got some great partners out there, but they're the real boots on the ground in their local communities, um, making these things work. So that that's one thing that's 
relatively unique to Montana. That it's really been the most successful um, thing in this program is just building those partnerships and working closely with others on on that issue. And, and then on top of that, so we have other partners that the state doesn't fund, like uh, Glacier National Park, Yellowstone National Park. Um, the city of Whitefish, all of them have their independent inspection stations, um, but we work closely with them, so the, the inspection programs are consistent, um, our materials are consistent, really just working closely together, so it's that clean drain dry message is consistent as well as what you see when you encounter an inspection station. It all should be quick and easy if your boat's clean and dry. State agencies need our help and support. Residents, local governments, and concerned citizens are instrumental in AIS prevention and education. This rings particularly true in the upper Midwest due to the sheer number of waterways. Washburn and Burnett County actually passed a county ordinance, a county law, that requires all boats that enter a lake, if there's a decontamination station at the lake, they are required to decontaminate those boats before they launch them or they have broken the law and they are liable to penalties, both monetary and potentially jail fine. So it's it's real severe. Burnett and Washburn County are the only two counties that have done that. Um, Barron County recently has, has passed basically like a zoning ordinance says that you should do that, but they haven't actually enforced it to the point Washburn and Barron County, or Washburn and Burnett County have, where they're actually, and it, it is a law that you can then be arrested. So that, that's the big, big way to stop the spread is the decontamination stations. So this summer, as we all head out to enjoy our incredible fisheries across the country, be mindful of the potential risks of transporting AIS. Be courteous to inspectors and follow all decontamination guidelines. Clean, drain, dry your boat and waiting gear to ensure that no nefarious hitchhikers are tagging along for the ride. Together, we can keep AIS from spoiling our pristine fisheries and watersheds. How's it going, buddy? Justin. Why up. Yeah, good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. How are you? Good, how are you doing? Good, man. Good. Good. This is your live well here. Uh, this isn't a live oh. well. This is just storage. I got my oh, passport gosh. in here, though. Go to thefebruaryroom.com, where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.